Awesome. Well, this is a message of a part two of a series called, Who is your God? Is he God the Father or is he the Godfather? Two very different ideas of who we believe God to be. And I've been troubled for some time that as I read the story of Jesus, I read his words, is that I see that he is on a mission to reveal the Father and reconcile us to him. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, I only do what I see the Father doing. Hebrews says that Jesus is the perfect image of the Father. And so what we learn about Jesus' motive, his intent, is that Jesus walked among us so that his life would inform every thought we have about the Father. His mission was to reveal the Father, so therefore his life should inform everything we know about the Father because he said, I only see what the Father is doing. He's the perfect image of him. And you've heard us maybe say before, it also appears in a Kennedy Rose rap uh, lyric, that Jesus is perfect theology. Jesus is perfect theology. We can know everything about the Father by looking at Jesus. So therefore, our concepts about the Father must match what we have seen in demonstration and in proof in the life of Jesus. That makes sense? Now, what's the problem with that? Is that we don't have the same image of God's nature in Jesus as we have in the Father. They don't match. Does anybody relate to that? That's like, Jesus, we get. We're, oh, awesome. And the Father, it's like, yeah, let's just kind of, I'll stick over here a little bit. That Jesus' entire mission was to reveal the Father, but yet you and I, we wrestle with these different pictures of who God is in the Father form or in the Son form. And it paints two wildly different pictures. Comparing the two, they don't even seem like they're even unified in one. And when it comes to the Father, a lot of people, whether you're a believer or not, they have a lot of, let's say, daddy issues. If I was more clever, I would have named that the series than God the Father. Uh, but maybe give it the wrong different idea. But, but in essence, we are okay with this man named Jesus. And you don't even need to be a believer to be okay with Jesus. But when it comes to the Father, we're not sure. It's almost like this good cop, bad cop kind of feel. In that for a lot of people, the descriptions of what God does in them, what God does on earth, it sounds a whole lot more like the Godfather than does God our Father. But Jesus comes and says that he is Abba, which means Daddy. If you're in our household, you hear my kids, and it's always Daddy. It's not Dad. (laughs) It's like, those are two different ideas. There's something about I'm not just father or dad, I'm daddy. And Jesus says, this is the one I'm reconciling to, not just our creator, but Abba. And so if our beliefs about Jesus' nature, if they differ from what we believe about the father's nature, then we have missed what Jesus desired to reveal through his life about the father. If we have a different picture of who Jesus is, who the father is, something's broken. We've missed Jesus' aim, his intent, and his heart. Because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What does that mean? It means that we can inform every thought we have about the Father by the life of Jesus, his character, his nature. 
And last time I talked about how we have this unhealthy fear of the Father. Because 1 John 4 says that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. And so yet we inexplicably have this like unexplained fear of who the Father is, whether we can articulate it or not. The fact that we have two different ideas of his nature, the fact that we're okay here and not so sure here, reveals that we have a problem, that we are not perfected in love. And so where does this underlying fear come from? For me, I had this kind of wandering journey through faith and never could shake this weird, unexplained fear of the Father. Again, Jesus is cool, but how do I understand why I have such an issue with the Father? And I believe that it is the narratives that we believe. I don't believe it's Bible verses necessarily. It's the narratives that we believe that sets the backstage of our relationship with Jesus that is causing us to fear and causing us confusion. And so these foundations of narratives that we believe, they are the ones that set and determine what we believe, how we interact, how we relate to the Father. And what we believe to be true about the Father is going to determine exactly how we relate to him. This is why some of us can be okay with Jesus, and we pray to Jesus, and we're like all about Jesus, but then when it comes to the Father, we kind of run out of words. We kind of run out of things to relate, and we just don't get it. But if we are in that position, again, something is broken, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. This series, Last Time and Tonight, is about replacing this broken narrative that we believe about humanity's relationship with the Father so that he's more of God the Father instead of the Godfather. So part one last month, I talked about how the fall and the narrative is how man failed and God separated. That God's holiness is so holy that it demanded that he separate from his children. And we believe this narrative for so long that it doesn't even sound weird to us that our story of humanity is actually one of child abandonment. It doesn't even cross our minds that that was the story. And so that we looked at how that is not the true narrative. The narrative is not sin and separation. The narrative is that man felt shame and became estranged, and God went after him. And so we have to find what we identify as the relationship between God and the humanity. But the troubling thing is we have this verse. Remember that Jesus on the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is our proof that Jesus, when he looks upon sin, or the Father, when he looks upon sin on, on Jesus, has to turn away. And that is where we get our proof that the Father cannot handle our sin. He must separate. And I wonder if this is also to cause and to explain why we have some of this fear, is that there's something in our humanity where we distrust anyone who leaves us in the middle of our brokenness. When we think about those who are closest to us, we think of those who joined us in our brokenness, who came near in our brokenness. And so our own narrative of humanity said that we sinned and God separated and how that is this undercurrent, this, this lie we didn't even know was there. And I'm just, I'm passionate about the Father. I don't know what it is. Like, it'd be so much easier to just talk about all, like, the five rules to get along with your neighbor, you know. But 
there's something that stirs in me that we are missing Jesus' mission if we are misaligned with who the Father is. And so last time, again, we looked at that, that sin and separation narrative and Jesus' final words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We reclaimed that. Do you remember that? That, that in Jewish culture, they had all the Psalms memorized. And so to quote the very first line of any psalm was to quote the entire thing. And there's one psalm that details all the, the, the crucifixion imagery, the messianic prophecy. And it's Psalm 22, which says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Jesus was not saying, God, why have you forsaken me? He's telling the world, I'm the Messiah. So we repair this narrative. And so what I want to do tonight is go back to the cross I want to revisit the second narrative that happens on the cross. And we have to ask ourselves, what exactly is the father accomplishing by sending his son to die? Now, a little church history for you. The first 1,500 years of church history, the church dominantly believed one thing. Almost 600 years ago, they believed a second thing. And that is the doctrine of atonement, which means what does the cross really mean? And disclaimer for you tonight, I'm going to stretch you. I'm going to put a little stirring stick in your mind, and I'm going to maybe stir around some thoughts maybe you've had. I'm going to poke at a couple different long entrenched beliefs, because this, I'm going to push against something that the church largely has believed for 500 years. And I want you to know that I'm still figuring this out. I actually was a different view about three or four weeks ago. I'll admit that. And so if I ruffle any feathers, I'm sorry. You can write me emails. Um, but as any great, you know, person who goes anywhere, like, take the good, spit out the bad, right? So if you disagree with me, that's totally fine. But I'm so passionate that the Father would be revealed correctly. I believe that this narrative is harming our ability to accomplish what Jesus want to accomplish. And I don't really like these nuances of theology either, that sometimes preachers answer questions that nobody's asking. I don't want that. The only reason I'm talking about this is because it directly relates to the Father. You guys good? You guys going to give me some grace on this? But at the very minimum, you're going to be curious by the end of this. All right, so what exactly happened at the cross? God the Father sends his son to die. What does the atonement really believe? And the current belief held by denominations of the Reformed category, a lot of Presbyterians, Baptists, probably all the main ones, probably with the exception of the Charismatics, believe in something called penal substitution. Penal substitution, which means it's the belief that Jesus was the substitutionary recipient of our punishment for our sins. That sin had to be punished, our sins had to be punished, and Jesus sat in our place and was punished for us. And this is what I learned as a child. This is what I learned in doctrine class in college. And John Calvin was the one who kind of introduced this notion in 1500. And John Calvin, it's important to know that he was an attorney. And so he was the one who kind of introduced this idea of God as a judge in the courtroom. And it brought uh, forth this imagery that there's a verdict to be happened. The judge issues the verdict. And then Jesus steps in the courtroom and takes our place. And that then he was led off to receive punishment in our place. And this is the modern view of atonement. And I'll refer to this view of atonement as punishment narrative. But we even sing songs about this. Like this theology has infiltrated 
all areas of our life. If you've been in a church the past 10 years, you know the song, In Christ Alone? You know how it goes, In Christ Alone. You know that song? Well, about the third verse, I'm not going to sing it all for you guys, but about the third verse, it goes, Till on that cross when Jesus died. Do you guys remember the next part? The wrath of God was satisfied. And so even the theology has infiltrated our worship, that the wrath of God fully upon Jesus takes our place. And we look to Jesus in gratitude for, thank you that you rescued me from the Father. The problem is, Jesus came to reconcile you to the Father. So our modern era has established this narrative where Jesus is this recipient of all this punishment, and in the punishment narrative, our salvation is secure because we believe. We believe in Jesus, and so we are eternally secure in our salvation, but there's a poison pill in the narrative that estranges us from the Father. One of the biggest challenges for me to develop an intimate relationship with the Father was believing that before Jesus stepped on the scene, the Father was on the way to punish me with death. That's in blunt terms, but that's how it makes me feel that Jesus was a martyr on my behalf. And that's why we're so great with Jesus. He's like, you saved me from death from that guy. No wonder we have these awkward relationships with the Father. And so tonight, what I want to do is I want to show you that the punishment narrative, I believe one, is damaging our ability to relate to the Father. It's also damaging his character. And third, I actually don't even believe it's biblically reliable. So here we go. Are you guys okay so far? No one has thrown anything, so we're doing great so far. All right, so Jesus, as punishment is damaging to the Father's character. Let me tell you why. Is the first problem is that in the punishment narrative, Jesus and the Father are not unified. That's a big problem. Jesus standing in our place and then the Father bringing wrath onto us and punishment into our place puts Jesus and the Father on opposing ends. He says that the Father brings judgment and Jesus acts as this human shield. And this is probably, again, why Again, our concept of Jesus is fine, but our concept of the Father are disrupted. And we forget so easily that Jesus was fully God. Jesus stood before all the, the Jews and the Pharisees, and he says, before there was Abraham, I am. He said, I'm Yahweh. Jesus said that he and the Father are one. Jesus said that, that he only does what he sees the Father doing. And so it wasn't that Jesus was being punished by the Father because the Father says that he and the Son are one. 2 Corinthians 5.18 puts it this way. He says that now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and he's committed us the same ministry of reconciliation. So did you catch that? God is in Christ. There's no such thing as Jesus and the Father on opposite ends, that they are one. And God is reconciling the world to himself. If we miss that we're supposed to be connected to the Father, we've actually missed the gospel. It's not Jesus 
paid for my sins. The gospel is I've been reconciled to the Father. That is exactly what he states. And it doesn't continue saying in here that God punished Jesus in our position for the sins of the world. He says, no, he is not counting the sins of the world against them. And so we are supposed to be the carriers of this message. But that doesn't work very well if we get the message wrong. And so the meaning of the cross is not that God punished his son in substitution for humanity, but in Christ, God himself took responsibility for all the world's evil and absorbed it into himself. That's a gospel message I can sign up for. The second problem in this punishment narrative is that God reveals his character as being thirsty for punishment. God reveals his character as being thirsty for punishment. There's something wrong about a father who's so thirsty for punishment that he would punish his own innocent son in our place. It just said, someone needs to die. Who? My son? Okay, good enough for me. That's the narrative. And when I became a father, I knew this narrative was off because so many times I've been confronted with my own relationship with my kids and I realized I'm a better father to my kids than my God is to me. I better change my theology because certainly that can't be the case. And so the question comes to mind, if God is so consumed with punishment and he let it loose on his beloved innocent son, how would I not believe that God wouldn't punish me in other ways? Like what other business of punishment is God doing? Is he the Godfather here? And what if I really mess it up? Can I really trust that he's loving and reconciled me when he's demonstrated a nature and a behavior for punishment. You see, because behavior makes a statement about someone's character. And that can fly with you and I. We can have lapses in judgment. We can make mistakes. This is the eternal, all-perfect king. We must be careful about what we put on God's behavior because behavior reveals character. This is why when someone commits a crime, we look at their character and we can be suspicious if they're going to repeat the crime. Someone who cheats on you in a relationship, you probably have a likely suspicion that they might be cheating again on you. And so why wouldn't we believe that God, if he's in the business of punishment, even irrational punishment, that he wouldn't be punishing us in other areas? The second question of this is that if God is okay punishing his innocent son, how just is he? Is God really satisfied in his justice by punishing someone who is really innocent? You and I would not consider Jesus taking our punishment as legitimate justice. We got all into making a murderer Netflix film. And like wrongful conviction is like one of these, oh my gosh, like... To be wrongfully convicted and wrongfully punished, there's something visceral in us that should object to it. And so for us to look at Jesus dying in our place, there's something about us that we can't look at it and say, that was true justice. For us, our justice in that mindset is flawed. And so Jesus, the second part, Jesus as our punishment, is also damaging to our ability to interact with the Father. So not only on the first hand do you have God's character kind of like questionable, our ability to interact with him is also under duress with this punishment narrative. And the first problem is this, is that in the punishment narrative, your salvation is secured, but your heart is estranged. Again, we're so thankful we're saved. But so many of us, 
are unsure about the Father. Salvation secured, heart estranged. And our narrative in this punishment substitution scenario is that God is the judge and he is the executioner. And so going back to that courtroom imagery, and this is what I learned. This is what I've held and believed for a long time, is that God issues this death sentence to us as judge. Judge bangs the gavel, death penalty to you, executioner come in, he steps aside as the executioner, comes over, gets the electric chair, and just as we're about to sit in, Jesus runs in and says, I will do it. And then the father pulls the lever and executes his son. Now that's where our narrative ends usually. But according to Jesus' aim, Jesus sat in the chair so that we would be reconciled to the executioner. And we don't even notice this. And no wonder we have this like unexplained like uneasiness with the Father because our heart knows better that in reality we distrust the Father even more because an innocent person died. There's a nature of justice that, that is not okay with that. And so we distrust the character of a person who's carrying out the justice because the wrong person died. Because you and I both know that we are the ones who committed the sins and we should be the ones that pay for the sins. And so we, I believe, subtly are distrusting God's definition of justice if Jesus paid for it. Are you guys still okay? All right. And so it is my belief that in our hearts that we hesitate to be reconciled to the one who is about to punish us with death. There's something about that. And in this narrative that we are being reconciled to the person that Jesus quite literally rescued us from. I believe firmly you cannot be reconciled to someone whom you still fear. Fear is the dividing mechanism that creates separation. This is why John is so brilliant in 1 John 4. It says that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For the one who fears is not perfected in love because fear involves punishment. Are you connecting the dots? We have fear because we still fear punishment. We still feel, we still fear punishment because Jesus was punished in our place. We're not perfected in love because we have fear. And our fear of punishment is perfectly rational because of what happened to Jesus. The second problem to this is, I don't know about you, but I don't feel any less in trouble than the fact that Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me, awesome. I still feel in trouble. I still feel responsible. I still feel the weight of my sin. This is why I gave my life to salvation in the Lord about a hundred times as a kid. I didn't care how many times. I felt this weight of guilt. I understood Jesus died my, on my behalf, but I still feel guilty. And so in the punishment narrative, I am freed of the consequence of sin, but I'm not freed from my guilt. I'm actually let off the hook of the consequence, but I'm not free to my guilt. And I actually, for me, I actually felt more guilty. Guilty of my sins, but also guilty that Jesus died for me. I remember as a young kid being like, Jesus, I, like, you didn't have to die for me. Like, I should die myself. 
Like I wanted, like, you, you never consulted me with this decision. Now I got to feel like I murdered you, you know, like, because you did it for me, and I, I don't like that. And someone being punished for something I did actually makes me feel far worse. Not only do I carry the guilt of my shame, but I carry the guilt of what happened to Jesus because of my sin and shame. And this is why people can receive forgiveness in Jesus, but always struggle with guilt and continually re-going back to the altar and continuing, continuing to try and rededicate their lives. And even if someone still stood in my place, I would not feel liberated from my sin. I would just feel like I got out of it, like I cheated. Finally, let's talk about how Jesus as punishment for our sins, I believe, is an actual unreliable interpretation of the Bible. The first problem is this, is that the definition of atonement does not imply punishment. I need to go back to my professor because I feel lied to. I always believed that atonement meant debt paid. That atonement basically means that punishment, justice was brought, but atonement is actually an Old Testament concept, and it actually means one mint to be reunited. Atonement is not Jesus paid the price. Atonement is I am reconciled to God. It's the idea of reconciling, not the idea of debt. The second problem, and most significantly, is the Old Testament sacrifices were never means of punishment. Old Testament sacrifices, the the system, the temples, the bulls, the goats, they were never about punishment. And if you believe that Jesus' sacrifice was symbolic of Old Testament sacrifices, you must abandon the idea that Jesus was punished in our place. I spent a long time reading all through Leviticus, which is fascinating, reading all I could about Jewish sacrificial systems. I learned every detail about it. I went back, and in studying them, I learned that they were never about punishment. They were ceremonies to renew forgiveness. Sacrifices created renewed covenants. That's what they did. They weren't to punish the poor goats. The Old Testament sacrifices were renewing this temporary covenant of forgiveness, not fulfilling the justice through punishment. This is really, really important to know. Well, how, how can we know? How can we be sure? It's because an entire nation, you had one priest once a year go in, and actually he would bring a bull, and he would sacrifice the bull for a covenant for his own household, and then have a, a goat. He had two goats, actually, and they would cast lots, and, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, okay, you, we'd slit that goat's throat. And then the people were actually represented in the other goats. And in that covenant, they would take the blood from the slain goat and put it on the head of the still-living goat that represented the people, declared them clean, and released the goat. That's where we get the term scapegoat. There you go. You've learned something tonight. How do we know that the Old Testament sacrifices weren't about punishment? Because consider this, that the the priest did this for the entire nation. Every human, every sin. You're telling me that one goat is the punishment for an entire nation? I don't think so. It doesn't even make sense. And the goat that represented the people got freed 
and declared clean. And so we know that these ceremonies where animals died, they weren't about punishment, they were creating ceremonies of renewed covenant. And in the Old Testament, they did it every year because it was a temporary covenant. It was a renewal of a covenant. And so the death of these animals, again, they didn't represent punishment, but they were ceremonies of an ancient people, tribal people, who that is how they made decisions. They didn't just go with God, but they made these covenants with people, also with animals. And it was cultural. And Jesus is that shadow. Jesus came and brought us, spoke to the Jewish people in their own language, their own terms, and their own ideas of covenant and promise. And if we believe that Jesus' death on the cross is a shadow of Old Testament sacrifices, we can't project onto Jesus what wasn't true in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? That if the lambs and the goats were not as punishment in the Old Testament and the sacrifices, if we believe that was a shadow of Jesus to come, we can't all of a sudden say, yeah, Jesus was the punishment because this was never punishment over here. And even when Jesus affirms this at the breaking of bread in Passover, remember in the communion, he says, this is the blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, not the punishment of sins. He didn't say my blood is poured out to take care of all you rotten people. He's like, this is a covenant, a new promise I make for you, a forgiveness of sins. And when you understand these dynamics, all of a sudden, new books of the Bible start to make sense. I don't know about you, but you kind of like go through Hebrews, you're like, oof, I'm going to skip past that one. Let's get back a little bit more Titus or 2 Timothy or something like that. But now that we understand the old covenant sacrificial system, now a book like Hebrews, actually makes a lot more sense. Let me read an excerpt to you. This is chapter 10. It says, But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Notice that. Every priest stands daily, ministry and offering time and time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he... Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, where there is no forgiveness of these things, now, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let me translate this for you. Bulls and goats can never take away sins. Jesus has taken away our sins and perfected us. And because of this, there's no need for any more sacrifices. Amen. Hallelujah. But again, in here, we see the absence of punishment. We see the absence of punishment in the Old Testament sacrificial system. We see the absence of it in the Hebrews making that line of priestly sacrifices. And so what does the blood of Jesus do? The blood of Jesus created a never-ending covenant of forgiveness for all time. In this new covenant, you are pre-forgiven of every sin. And even if you do sin, you sin under the umbrella of a never-ending, perpetual renewal, covenant forgiveness that says, I will never leave you. When Jesus made that covenant, he says, I'm going to do this, and you're going to live and operate in a perpetual state of forgiveness and covenant because the covenant is what the Father says, I'm eternally committed to you. And because I'm eternally committed to you, I'm going to cause for us to have this covenant of forgiveness that no matter what you do, you already are forgiven. 
Because for me, I would have issues. I would get saved and like, okay, well, you know, Jesus paid for my sins up until now and then like 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. And then, well, now what? Like, he didn't die for this sin, you know? Like, what now? But in this view, where the, the, the death of Jesus is not punishment, but it's the creation of a perpetual forgiving covenant, I now have freedom in my failure, knowing that God is eternally committed to me. He would never leave me. But the unique thing is that Hebrews, in drawing these parallels, makes this unusual statement about atonement, that not only did it sanctify us, did you catch it? It perfected us. This brings up a very powerful point of the cross, that the blood of Jesus not only creates forgiveness, but the blood of Jesus has the operational power to transform. I went on a study in this. I went on a study to find every verse in the New Testament and Old Testament that had to do about the death of Jesus, the blood on the cross, and what happened. It took me about three weeks to find all of them. I consulted a couple of theologians. I consulted different books. And I went on an entire search, like, what, what different ideas and words can I find? I found 88 different passages on the cross, atonement, the blood of Jesus, and what happened. Two things that were interesting. One is I did not find a single passage about punishment, which is highly disappointing because I was looking for it. There's one that if someone's really nerdy that wants to email me, we'll talk about it. But what I did found, what I did find was that the blood of Jesus, it's the most amazing thing. What happened on the cross to us, for those who believe, it is mind-blowing. And I will send this list to anybody who wants, but let me just read you some of the things that the blood of Jesus does for us. It makes us new. It was an atonement. It redeemed us. It justified us. It adopted us as children. It saved us. It purified us. It sanctified us. It took away our sin. It reconciled us. It canceled our enemy status. It freed us from sin. It freed us from death. It gave us an inheritance. It caused us to die to the law. It caused us to die to sins. It caused us to fulfilled the requirement of the law. It made us righteous. It made us alive in Christ. It hides your life with Christ. It paid a ransom. It purchased us. Are you guys tired of all the blood of Jesus things? It made us at peace. It rescued us from the evil, from evil in the age. It released us from our sin. It removed condemnation. It heals us. It created a new covenant. It protects us from future desolation. It destroyed the works of the devil, and it triumphed over demons. To say that the blood of Jesus was about our punishment would be the biggest understatement ever. What it did for us, how it transformed us, it's amazing. As I went through these verses, I'm just like in awe. And behind that, I find this revealing image of the Father who's like, I never was after you. I was conspiring to reconcile us. I was after for us to have the right image because I sent my sons that you would know me. And a whole bunch of smart people invented some other terminology. And now you're terrified of me. The blood of Jesus is a lot of things, but it's my opinion. In my search for the scriptures, it's not the punishment on our behalf. The blood of Jesus brought forth forgiveness and also transformation. Not the successful punishment of us, that he and the Father decided they would come together 
and bring us back into union, into fellowship, that they were so in love with us, they were going to create not just a temporal covenant, but a perpetual covenant and send his son so that not only would be we be forgiven, but we'd be transformed, that Jesus became who we are so that we might become who he is. That's the gospel story. Because you and I, we were terminal in our sins. I don't want you to, to for a second, misconstrue me that I think that our sins weren't heavy, that our sins weren't awful, and, and I don't want you to, to even come close to presuming that sin was not what caused the death penalty of our life, but by its own consequence, not by the Father. But then the Father and Jesus conspired together to create an antidote that would reverse the death. That it says that Jesus became sin for us, which again, how do people say that God and sin can't coexist when... Anyways, <laughs> that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, a covenant of perpetual forgiveness, a life of transformation. And when we correct this narrative, the cross is the biggest statement of God's character for us. You either believe that Jesus is taking punishment in our place or you believe that the Father and Son went on this amazing rescue mission to save us from ourselves and to save us from the pending doom and reverse the antidote that was going to bring death in us. And so why does this matter? Again, I, I'm sorry that this was a huge theological you know, fire hose to the face, but it resolves our fear of punishment so that we actually can be perfected in love. We will never be perfected in love for as long as we hold fear. For me, the narrative of a father who cannot handle his kid's brokenness and his holiness is so holy that he separates cause fear. Well, are you going to leave me again, Lord? The narrative, I am so just, I have to punish someone who's innocent for your sins, causes me fear. These two things were the thorns in my side that allowed me never to step into the purpose that Jesus came to earth to reveal the Father and to reconcile us to him. And the last is that I believe getting rid of the punishment narrative, it actually redeems the character of the Father. It's like, you weren't after me. We're cool now. And it helps us really understand that Jesus had one mission, to reveal the Father and to reconcile us to him. And we don't need to put Jesus and the Father on two different pages that they are both in union, both for our love. And finally, it creates for us a narrative in which we can share with the world. Instead of going to the world and saying, hey, God is really mad, but fortunately he punished you in Jesus 2,000 years ago, to say, God so loves you. He created a, for, a, a covenant that pre-forgave all of your sins, now, present, and future, that will never run out. And all you need to do to step into that covenant is to believe. And he enters a relationship with you like you would never believe. That's a gospel message I can sign up for. I love you guys.